There's a Haitian proverb in Creole that says, Haiti, c'est glissé. Haiti is slippery ground. The proverb conveys the complex nature of the country and its inhabitants. Yet in spite of the fact that they defy simple definitions, Haiti and its people are often reduced to racialized stereotypes of being, quote, the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere, unquote, or the home of voodoo. Hi, I'm Milton Allen Turner, and this week I'm talking about why Haiti has an image problem and, in the words of Gina Athena Uris, why it needs new narratives. Welcome to this week's edition of Worldviews. Wire reports repeated throughout the media following the assassination of Jovenel Moise in early July followed a similar but disturbing pattern. They would include lines like, quote, The news rocked the impoverished Caribbean island nation 675 miles southeast of Miami. Haiti has a long history of dictatorships and coups, and democracy has never fully taken root, unquote. New York Times reporters Natalie Kitroff and Anatoly Kermenev wrote in an article how the assassination of Haiti's president follows years of strife and gridlock. Quote, the country freed by slaves from French colonial overlords more than 200 years ago has struggled with a legacy of corruption, violence, and political paralysis. They've summarized Haiti's history as, quote, in the two centuries since its independence, Haiti has struggled to emerge from cycles of dictatorships and coups that have kept the country impoverished and struggling to deliver basic services to many of its people, unquote. Then a few short weeks following the assassination of President Moise, Haiti was struck by an earthquake. Gina Athena Udis wrote, quote, in media coverage of the quake and its aftermath, some nuances of the dehumanization narrative have emerged that are particularly dangerous and especially given their implications. In these, Haitians are either subhuman or superhuman. The subhumanity stems from the dominant idea in popular imagination that Haitians are irrational, devil-worshipping, progress-resistant, undereducated, accursed black natives overpopulating this godforsaken land. The superhuman characteristic is usually framed in terms of resilience. Udis notes, quote, To the West, Haiti is popularly known as the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. Code for poor and black. But this portrayal of Haiti is not new. Udis noted 10 years ago, back in 2011, that, quote, as reporting of the one-year anniversary of the earthquake that devastated our birth country continue to fill the airwaves, many of us at home and abroad cringe as television screens and newspapers are satiated with standard formula media representations of Haiti. Others, like myself, and diehard Haiti-files have been preparing for the bombardment of, quote, the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere, unquote, taglines that accompany every segment. 
Udis goes on to quote Fabienne Doucet, New York University professor, who said, we've always been depicted as desperate, pathetic, and needy. Moreover, she added, I don't think we're being represented any differently than we have been represented my entire life. Udis points out that, quote, the mainstream depictions of Haiti that we continually see are actually reproductions of narratives and stereotypes dating back to the 19th century, when in the aftermath of the Haitian Revolution, the new, free, black republic that ended slavery and disrupted the order of things in the world became a geopolitical pariah, and our humanity was disavowed. In an interview this summer with Brandy Zadrovsny for the radio program On the Media, in a segment entitled, Haiti Needs a New Narrative, Udis argues, when we hear Haiti is the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere, it tells us absolutely nothing. It doesn't tell us, for example, that there's extreme wealth there. It doesn't tell us that there's a class system a very entrenched class system there. It doesn't tell us that there are forces that are developed to render what was once the most profitable colony in the Caribbean to become the, quote, poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere, unquote. Haiti paid a big price in the aftermath of the Haitian Revolution. Haiti conquered three major European armies, declared itself a sovereign country. One of the few things that was written in the Haitian constitution is that any person that lands in Haiti who is black will be free at a time when the rest of the world was engaged in slavery and was benefiting from slavery. So Haiti was isolated as a result of that. Udis adds that an important part of that history is quote, understanding the impact that the American occupation, for example, has had on Haiti from 1915 to 1934. It was the American government that actually instituted the Haitian police. In the late 1960s and 70s, the United States supported the dictatorship. She also laments the fact that if experts are interviewed to discuss Haiti in the media, quote, the experts are usually white men, or it's a white woman here and there. And then the voice of experience is the Haitians, as though Haitians themselves are not capable of analysis. Guess what? They can speak for themselves. Haiti has new narratives, but no one is actually listening to what the people in Haiti are saying, because the voices in Haiti that have always mattered are the voices of the rich are the voices of the people who are able to pay lobbyists and the people considered to be more capable ones. No one wants to hear from a peasant or grassroots organizations. In the introduction to their book, Teaching Haiti, Strategies for Creating New Narratives, Cécile Axilien and Valérie K. Orlando explain, Haïti, c'est glissé. Haiti is a slippery land. This proverb 
is often used to refer to Haiti's complexity in terms of its historic and present challenges. It also invites those who think they know the country on the surface to search deeper in order to discover the complexities inherent in its culture, history, and geography. They go on to say that many contributors to their book, quote, take up this challenge explicitly, pointing the way to new narratives that challenge and go beyond the stereotypical, neo-colonial, imperialist, racist, and simplistic discourses about Haiti and Haitian culture. As their scholars note, often Haiti is either venerated as the first black republic or pitied for the current challenges it faces in terms of poverty and geographical catastrophes. When its history does surface in texts, it's often mythologized, taking on aspects of the surreal. Expressing this idea, historian Philippe Zakeir notes that Haiti is, quote, only respected in books as opposed to real life, unquote. Part of this mythologizing and misrepresentation can be seen in the coverage of the earthquakes or natural disasters. In her essay, Rendering Haiti Visible in an Introductory American Studies course, Elizabeth Langley cites Nadejte Silatendre, who described, quote, the degrading way in which the international media presented Haiti and its history in the aftermath of the earthquake of 2010. From reducing the Haitian Revolution to a, quote, pact with the devil, unquote, as Pat Robertson did, to calling for an intrusive paternalism that combats so-called progress-resistant cultural influences, to describing the survivors of the quake as looters inciting violence, to blaming the natural disaster on the victims and their inability to use birth control. The unimaginable, unprecedented catastrophe in Haiti was being made legible through recognizable, long-standing master narrative of degradation. The roots of the disaster are more mundane and much less sensational, but they should not render them less important or any less worthy of notice. Haitian-born writer Dany Laferriere wrote a memoir of his experience of the 2010 earthquake called Tout Bouge Autour de Moi, or translated by David Hommel as The World is Roving Around Me. In this memoir, Laferriere recalled, a 7.3 earthquake isn't that bad. You still have a chance. Concrete is the killer. National Public Radio's Jacqueline Diaz reported in a recent story that this summer's earthquake was a magnitude 7.2 earthquake that, quote, crumbled houses and buildings and killed more than 1,200 people. Diaz also noted that there are two major fault lines in Hispaniola, the island shared by Haiti and the Dominican Republic. The southern fault line is known as Enriquillo Plantain Garden Fault System. Before the 2010 earthquake, 
there hadn't been a major quake along the Enriquillo Plantain Garden Fault zone for more than 200 years. Diaz continued, in the years since, Haitians have focused on building their houses to withstand the bigger threat in their neighborhood, hurricanes. Structures are made of concrete and cinder block hold up well during storms, but are more vulnerable during earthquakes. Ben Finley of the Associated Press wrote in his article, Why Are Earthquakes So Devastating in Haiti? That the earthquakes are so devastating because of, quote, a combination of factors that include a seismically active area, a high population density of 11 million people, and buildings that are designed to withstand hurricanes, not earthquakes. Typical concrete and cinder block buildings can survive strong winds, but are vulnerable to damage and collapse when the ground shakes. Geophysicist Jeff Abers told NPR that, quote, Haitians didn't think of themselves as living in earthquake country, even though a fault line runs through the country's most populated areas, including the capital, Port-au-Prince. As NPR's Mary Louise Kelly reported, Thousands of Haitians who lost their homes in the August 14th earthquake have been getting pummeled by rain and winds three days later from Tropical Storm Grace. The storm crossed directly over the quake ravage south of the country, and this is adding to the suffering and hampering efforts to get relief supplies into those areas. NPR reporter Jason Bobian reported, for the first two nights after the quake, many residents here in the town of Cotul slept in the main street. 57-year-old Kitty Rosier is one of them. Rosier said, we can't stay inside because all the houses have been cracked and we're very afraid we go outside. But in the midst of this tragedy, there's growing concern that continued reports about Haiti will fade away from the U.S. media coverage due to disaster fatigue. J.D. Long Garcia wrote an article in America Magazine entitled, Catholics, Haiti Deserves Your Attention, Earthquake or Not. Long Garcia summarized from his reporting trips to Haiti that he had learned many things, but three lessons stood out. Number one, don't make assumptions. Number two, history matters. And number three, the story isn't over just because we're tired of it. Longer Garcia continued, Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. A lot of people know that, but I don't think a lot of people know why. Haiti, or Saint-Domingue, as it was known under French rule, had been France's richest colony, producing an abundance of cotton, coffee, and sugarcane. In 1825, France sent warships to Port-au-Prince and forced Haiti to compensate French colonists for the lost land and enslaved laborers. The country did not pay off this debt until 1947. Coups and dictators over the following decades escalated Haiti's debt, and it's never recovered. Dan Sperling 
wrote in a 2017 Forbes magazine article entitled, In 1825, Haiti paid France $21 billion to preserve its independence, and it's time for France to pay back. In the article, Sperling said, quote, In 1825, barely two decades after winning its independence against all odds, Haiti was forced to begin paying enormous, quote, reparations to the French slaveholders it had overthrown. Those payments would have been a staggering burden for any fledgling nation. But Haiti wasn't just any fledgling nation. It was a republic formed and led by blacks who'd risen up against the institution of slavery. As such, Haiti's independence was viewed as a threat by all slave-owning countries, the United States included, and its very existence rackled racist sensibilities globally. Thus, Haiti, tiny, impoverished, and all alone in a hostile world, had little choice but to accede to France's reparation demands, which were delivered to Port-au-Prince by a fleet of heavily armed warships in 1825. Sperling concluded, by complying with an ultimatum that amounted to extortion, Haiti gained immunity from French army and French military intervention, relief from political and economic isolation, and a crippling debt that took 122 years to pay off. Gina Athena Udis noted, quote, the payment to France and French banks amounted to half of Haiti's government budget in 1898. 16 years later, on the eve of the U.S. occupation of Haiti, the debt payments absorbed 80% of the government's budget. By some measures, what Haiti paid back eventually amounted to some $21 billion in 2004 dollars. Udis further notes that after declaring itself a sovereign state in 1804, Haiti paid a high price for its freedom. It not only abolished slavery, but boldly declared that no white person should ever set foot on the island under the title of master or proprietor. Whites were barred from owning land. Not surprisingly, Haiti became a geopolitical pariah, diplomatically isolated for nearly 60 years because it threatened the great powers that still trafficked in slaves. Unquote. In her essay, Rendering Haiti Visible, in an introductory American Studies course, Elizabeth Langley said, Haiti has often been described in exceptionalist terms, with the success of the Haitian Revolution on one hand and its economic difficulties on the other. That is, it's often referred to as the first black republic and the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. As to the former, as Aslan Charles elaborates, the awareness Haitians have of the exceptional circumstances of their nation and under which it was born and how they became a people shapes their view of themselves and their place in the world. The dramatic singularity of their history 
naturally has fostered in them, and particularly as their country was isolated by colonialist powers during the 19th century, a sense of their own singularity, of their uniqueness. Theirs is, after all, the land where the first and only successful slave revolt in history took place, unquote. Sibyl Fisher wrote in Modernity Disavowed, to this day, most accounts of the period that shaped Western modernity and placed notions of liberty and equality at the center of political thought fail to mention the only revolution that centered around the issue of racial equality. Gina Athena Udis underscores this racial element in her book, Why Haiti Needs New Narratives. She says, there's an underlying subtext here about race. For Haitians are blackness in its worst form because simply put, l'enfant terrible of the Americas who defied all European odds had to become its bête noire. Ulysse goes on to say, the condition of Haiti is a product of two centuries of retaliation for having the temerity to destroy slavery by violent revolution, by taking the global sugar economy's most precious jewel from the planters, traders, bankers, and imperial rulers, and for surviving as an example for other enslaved peoples. Ulysse added, this small territory where enslaved Africans outnumbered their European masters, dared to successfully defend itself against three European armies to claim its independence at a time when other nations in the region still trafficked in slaves. Freedom came at a price, the hefty sum of 150 million francs and 60 subsequent years of international isolation. The seclusion fermented cultural practices in ways that rendered aspects of life in Haiti the most recognizably African in the hemisphere. In the introduction to their book, Teaching Haiti, Strategies for Creating New Narratives, Asilien and Orlando explain, the success of the Haitian Revolution and reports of massacres by émigrés gens de couleur libre and white refugees fed a rising fear that gripped plantation owners in the United States. Part of this fear was that if they were to allow free people of color to have status in society, they might, inspired by the example of Haiti, encourage all people of color to rebel. This fear became all the more palpable when it seemed to materialize in Gabriel Prosser's planned insurrection of 1800. Jessica Adams notes in her essay, Race and Culture, on the thrift store shift teaching about Haiti inside and outside of the academy, that, quote, in terms of popular attitudes, Haiti has become arguably the most denigrated, the most demeaned, most dehumanized site in the Caribbean, even the West as a whole, unquote. Adams references Paul Farmer, who noted in his book, The Uses of Haiti, that, quote, the United States and Haiti 
are something other than the richest and the poorest countries in the hemisphere. They are also its two oldest republics. Rarely, in fact, have two countries been so closely linked as the United States and Haiti. Haitians are, by and large, fully aware of this historical fact. But citizens of the United States are, by and large, oblivious to these links. Adams explains that, quote, the version of Haiti that stigmatized repeatedly in Western journalistic and popular discourse is in part the creation of the very powers that patronize, condemn, and estrange it as either frightening or simply inexplicable. Adams also notes that it is, quote, white planters' narratives of enslaved people's helplessness and disorder of their need to be governed by the white other that have dominated the discourse of the new world. Such narratives have been repeated endlessly, morphing into a story told over and over by former and current colonial powers, gazing upon what they've wrought and disclaiming responsibility for it. And intended to serve as tautological confirmation that black nations are hopeless, unquote. Gina Udis laments in her book, Why Haiti Needs New Narratives, that, quote, there are two Hades. There's Haiti the victim, the, quote, broken nation, the failed state, the human tragedy, the basket case. The other Haiti, of course, is the Haiti of revolution, of Toussaint, of Dessalines. This is the Haiti that led the only successful slave revolt in the modern world, the Haiti that showed France and all other incipient bourgeois democracies the meaning of liberty. The Haiti whose African armies defeated every major European power that tried to restore her ancien régime. The Haiti that inspired revolutions for freedom and independence throughout the Western Hemisphere. Rarely do these two Hades share the same sentence, except when illustrating the depths to which the nation has descended. Jessica Adams suggests that, quote, generating new narratives of Haiti can be aided by both real and imagined listening to the voices who've been silenced as they were made to disappear into stereotypes and into objects in objectification. Adams adds, I think this approach may be useful in teaching in general, as well as considering how to teach about Haiti outside of Haiti, as well as what people outside of Haiti think that they know is actually stereotypes. And Haiti itself has been objectified by political manipulations, as well as in news coverage for too long to count. When studying Haiti, Adams recommends, it may be important, depending on who you are, to forget everything you thought you knew. J.D. Long Garcia concluded that knowing Haiti's history not only helps to understand the seemingly endless suffering 
but also it gives a reason for hope. Reporting on Haiti that neglects the historical dimension is incomplete. Depending on our history or experience, perhaps we may need to forget what we thought we knew, or perhaps we need to listen to the voices and stories that were silenced and kept from us. Whatever the case may be, let's do what we can to ensure that new narratives of Haiti, this slippery land, are not exclusively tales of misery and woe. Let's make sure that these new narratives include tales of joy and hope. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this week's show and that you found something in it to spark a deeper conversation leading to greater understanding. I'm Milton Allen Turner, and I invite you to join me again next week for more worldviews.